Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and welcome back to another great session of what do we call ourselves? The Learning Curve. And of course, I'm joined by Kara, who I believe is in Massachusetts today. Well, I'm glad you remembered the name of the show. That's good. Yeah, yep. I'm in. Is anybody going anywhere? I'm not going anywhere. I'm 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 here in Massachusetts. Yes, I am. And, uh, you know, and in preparing for uh, an upcoming feast with members of my immediate family. How about you? Yes, just the four of us. Not that we're trying to prove anything, but we're going to just eat amongst ourselves and we're going to call friends on Zoom and a few people. But uh, the good thing this year, I'm actually going to cook our first Thanksgiving meal and it's going to be untraditional, but traditional in some sense. Not doing turkey, but I'm actually going to make gumbo. Oh, that sounds way better than what I've got planned. <laughs> do, you, do you actually, so do you actually know how to cook gumbo, Gerard, or are you just going to like jump in and try it? Is this a specialty of yours? Not a specialty. It's not one I've done in, in a number of years, but my mother is from Louisiana. I grew up watching and eating a lot of gumbo and uh, have made it a few times and realized this year, you know what, I want to do something special uh, for my wife who's always cooked or friends of ours have always cooked um, to add, you know, Thanksgiving in with a little Louisiana flair. And the girls have never had gumbo that I've made. They've had gumbo before. So when we have our show next week, I'll tell you who got sick and who cried. And yeah, we'll see. And then maybe, maybe repost, post the revised uh, recipe. on the yeah. <laughs> Exactly. We'll come back and just cut this part out. Yeah. That's amazing. And can I also say, I just love, like, you just said, you know, give your wife a break from the cooking this year. Men stepping up during the pandemic. It's been a true learning curve for everybody. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, I love it. And I also have to say, like, I've got, I don't, I made the mistake of even though knowing um, we weren't going to have friends over like we do in other years, we, we may see somebody outside. Um, I, I'm going to have this enormous turkey to cook and we don't even like turkey that much. And I'm thinking, mm. like, what was I doing? It's just a lot of work for very little reward. And then we're going to be eating turkey for, I can only imagine how long. Ugh. But um, lucky to have that turkey. So I guess I should stop complaining. Very, very lucky that we're, we're healthy and safe and, ab and able to have a feast. So I'll take, I'll take all of that back. Um, what's, that, what's on your radar this week, Gerard? What are you watching in the news? So for the people in Ohio, this is always a big Ohio story because they play a big role in um, American politics. But here's a story from uh, Catalie Franco from the AP, November 19th. Ohio lawmakers okay revamp of eligibility for school vouchers. And as many of you know, uh, Ohio actually has five programs uh, in the voucher program, according to our friends at uh, American Federation for Children. And the one that we're discussing is the Ed's Choice Scholarship Program, uh, enacted 2005, roughly 30,000 students are enrolled. And the lawmakers said, listen, why don't we provide uh, private school tuition to students who are in poorly performing public schools? Something that lawmakers have talked about, not only in Ohio, but across the country for years. If the poorly performing uh, public school model criteria remained in place, they identified that 1,200 schools yeah. would yeah. likely have found themselves uh, in that category. Naturally, people from the left and the right got together, talked, and said, you know what? We're going to create criteria and shrink the list to impact only 470 schools. 
Um, and we'll see what's going to happen. So this is going to go to uh, Governor Mike Devine's uh, desk for consideration. But the point here is two things. Number one, uh, we're still talking about poor performing schools. And we've been talking about this for five presidents now. And so as we move into 2021, hopefully this conversation will see the numbers go down. Number two, this is important to remember, giving people access to their tax dollars that they paid into the system to use it to go to a private school of their choice is not anti-public school. It's not defunding public education. It is not the end of the world as we know it. It's simply giving people an opportunity to leave what isn't working and to go to a place that may be. And working could mean academic. It could also mean safety. It could also mean a faith-based education. It could mean a lot of things. So we'll see what happens. But uh, this is uh, something pretty big for Ohio. And I found the story interesting. Amen, Gerard. That was that was very well put. That almost came close to a rant and I loved it. That was that was amazing. And and thank you. You know, it's it's interesting that for those of us who've been watching what's going on in Ohio, this the failing schools, like you said, so like for that many failing schools to be identified, I think there are a couple different things that folks in Ohio have been thinking about and talking about for a while, which is what does the accountability system look like? What does the mm-hmm. school grading system look like? All of these things. But here we have doing the right thing and expanding eligibility based on the right criteria. And I think that this is a change that's been long in coming. It's a good one for kids. It's a good one for families. And yes, to the point that you made, um, just yes, to all of the points that you made, this is about um, giving giving kids and families access and the access that they deserve with the taxpayer dollars that they pay into the system. So I'll, I'll stop there because you said it all and you said it all very well. Um, I'm going to turn our attention to teachers. Uh, did you know I... You know, I did a lot of teacher training in my life. I used to work for an organization called NATE. Shout out to the National Academy of Advanced Teacher Education. But um, although I spent a lot of time operating in the world of choice, boy, do I love teachers and thinking about teachers and everything. And one of the... Uh, one of the things that everybody, well, not everybody, one of the things that the Wonk class was <laughs> predicting at the beginning of this pandemic was that, oh, there's just going to be this huge wage of, wave of teacher retirements, wave of teacher retirement. Oh, my gosh, everybody's retiring. We're always afraid of teacher shortages in this country. And as you and I both know, uh, teacher shortages happen in some places. It doesn't mean that they're felt everywhere all at once, right? But so today's article, um, though, is uh, about a report that just came out um, from Bellwether and Bellwether Education Partners. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was USA Today, I believe, that made this prediction back in the spring saying there's going to be this huge wave of retirement. It turns out that's actually not true. (laughs) And that's not true um, to the extent that it looks like they canvassed this. In this study, Bellwether looked at 50 states in Washington, D.C., they got retirement data from a handful of states, right, but but a good sample. And they looked at 865,000 active workers. And it seems that what happens um, is that they're not actually seeing this huge wave of teacher retirements. In fact, they saw them go up in just a few little places, and, and the dire predictions are not coming true at all. So So why? Um, you know, I mean, will we know why? But it seems that number one, these teacher pension systems do a good job of keeping teachers 
locked in until they actually are allowed to retire under the rules of the pension. So people weren't willing, given the COVID-19 pandemic, and especially because most schools went remote, to sort of say, I'm out. You know, it seems like if teachers were able to work from home and feel safe, that they they did not um, retire early. And as I said, that combination of is, is this is now I'm quoting an article in the 74, the combination of guaranteed retirement benefits and health insurance means that public school educators are in a more stable position financially than other Americans who are reaching retirement age. So as you know, so many of us, so many of us uh, across the country have experienced the the impact of of the pandemic economically or have experienced the fear that we may experience the impact of the pandemic um, economically. Um, at least some of our teachers who were vested and, and nearing retirement age, it appeared that that gave them a little bit more security. So I think this is really good news overall, of course, mm-hmm. when it comes to our teachers who have been in the system for, for a long time. The one question I always have is, how are we leveraging them? And, um, you know, how are we leveraging expertise? How are we leveraging them to mentor new folks? How are we leveraging them to help us bring bright young people into the profession? And um, I just hope that one of the consequences of the pandemic, uh, as I fear, is that um, is that too much of that we, we haven't leveraged these folks in the right way because we've been so focused on just the business of getting school done day to day by any means possible. So something to look out for, but a really interesting article. And you all can read about that too in the 74. The the analysis is entitled, Did School System Retirements Spike in 2020? Data from seven state pension plans show they've actually decreased. So it's really good stuff. And coming up after this, Gerard, we've got, I'm very excited for this conversation because it's about a, um, a, um, a, group of schools, an education management organization that I know you know that I have in fact studied for Pioneer Institute, published papers on. It's the Sabas Education Management System. And we are going to be talking to Carl Bastani, who's the who's the president of Sabas. And, um, you know, they have a truly global view of what's been going on in education for a very long time, but especially in this past year. So we will be speaking with Carl right after this. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, today we have with us Carl Bastani. He is a board member and the president of Sabas, an education business that started in 1886 and has grown to become a multinational education network that manages pre-K, K-12 schools and employs over 9,000 professionals. Today, the Sabas Network educates over 70,000 students in public and private schools and has an active presence in 21 countries on five continents. Carl was the 2017 international president of the Chief Executives Organization. Among his involvement on boards around the world, he served as a senior member of the executive board of the Institute for Social and Economic Policy in the Middle East at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Carl is also a member of the World Bank Advisory Group on Engaging the Private Sector and the co-author of Last Bell, Breaking the Gridlock in Education Reform. He's an alumnus of Syracuse University and Harvard, having completed the Harvard Business School Executive Education Owner President Manager Program. Carl Bastani, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
Well, I have to tell you, I'm particularly excited to be able to talk to you today and to bring this episode to our listeners, because as I was telling you at the beginning of the show, I have had um, the pleasure, in fact, the privilege of studying um, some of the, the Saba schools right here in Massachusetts. So um, the schools that I've looked at are, are charter schools that contract with Sabas. And um, it's it's a fascinating model. And in fact, a fascinating history has been written about Sabas, a book, um, a, a book that we'll recommend to our listeners and probably have on the website. But as we mentioned, this company was founded over 130 years ago. I think most people would find that um, pretty amazing, if especially if they haven't heard of Sabas. Can you tell us about the founding intent of the company, um, what the Sabas system is, and some of your proudest accomplishments internationally? Yes, I'll be glad to. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Sabis is a family-owned education management organization that started back in 1886. And uh, the main driver behind the founding of the first school in what uh, has become uh, eventually the global Sabis network was the belief of our two visionary founders, and they were really visionary, in the value of educating girls. Uh, they felt uh, that, uh, uh, and this, is, uh, this was the reason behind the starting of, of the school, they wanted to basically educate uh, girls in, in this uh, specific village. They understood that educating girls was key to the economic growth and stability of, of the country. So when the first school opened, it accepted only girls, as, as uh, I mentioned, and continued to do so for uh, three years, the first three years, until the villagers uh, came demanding that their son be uh, accepted at the school and to avail themselves of the same high quality education uh, that their daughters was getting. And uh, the school ever since became coeducational. Uh, on, you know, our proudest accomplishment, obviously, there are many, many things that we do or did that makes us all extremely proud. However, uh, if I were just to summarize it all, I would say that it is the fact that we are and we continue to make a real difference in the lives of students attending our schools, especially in some of the most challenging environments in the world. You know, it is stories like when you hear a, a, a student that joined you in kindergarten or grade one uh, and did not speak English at all and ended up uh, on a scholarship going to Harvard or Stanford. This is worth a $6 million check, uh, basically. You know, you, you can't put a price uh, uh, on it. Yeah, that that's um, <laughs> very well put. It's an interesting way to think about it. And I think that 
I know I was when I um, first started started studying Sabas, and I think many of our listeners will be very, very surprised to learn that it sort of flips the narrative, right? It's set out to educate young women, and in fact, what you have are parents demanding <laughs> to let their to let their sons into the school, which I find to be <clears throat> uh, as as a mother of both sons and a daughter, um, a pretty pretty amazing. Um, so you have this well-established record of educating young women in the Middle East. And here in the U.S., if we can flip to what Sabas does here, actually, um, the, the groups of students you're most likely to serve tend to be um, those who are most disadvantaged, tend to be uh, lower income uh, minority students. Can you talk a little bit about why Sabas has been so successful educating students who uh, we might say have been on the periphery in some sense. Well, it's it's important to preface that uh, uh, Sabis uh, uh, is uh, successful educating all uh, kind of uh, students, uh, underserved, at risk, or or not. Uh, you know, and this uh, really. Uh, <clears throat> emanates from the fact that uh, very early on, uh, we had a belief that uh, uh, for a school to be successful, it needed to be academically non-selective and it needed to add real value uh, to, uh, to the students. So when you're, uh, Going back to an environment where you're uh, educating uh, at-risk students or underserved uh, students, in most uh, situations, uh, and I know from some of the public schools that we are operating in northern Iraq, for example, uh, kids are coming to us with no, with very little academic uh, foundation. Uh, at at all ages, and uh, we are uh, supposed to really reconstruct this academic foundation of knowledge. And because of that belief that our success should be uh, driven uh, by the fact that uh, we can add value to any student, we have worked diligently in. Uh, 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 designing and developing tools and methodologies that allows us to see basically uh, where uh, are uh, the gaps that are formed in, in the student's uh, foundation of knowledge and uh, be able to, uh, to work in closing these gaps one after, after the other. So uh, this is uh, basically why we can take on uh, challenging uh, cases or, or go into challenging environments and challenging situations. The other uh, thing that uh, <clears throat> helps us mostly in, in such difficult environments is, uh, you know, giving uh, our students uh, hope and and belief that they can uh, be uh, uh, active uh, 
in in uh, in their communities, and uh, this is achieved through our student life organization, which is a parallel student-run administration where students uh, are empowered to uh, take ownership of of their uh, uh, life at school, let it be academic or non non academic so they get involved in all kinds of activities uh, even uh, ac you know academic related activities so we have a program that we call shadow teaching where students are empowered and trained and supported to be uh, teaching uh, other students and that would provide them with the ability to uh, master the knowledge themselves and give them the the incentive to to put in the effort to to keep on uh, you know doing the work they're doing. It, it that sounds almost Montessori like in in some ways. Um, so here you are operating schools in so many different places. And I think people will be very surprised to learn that you're operating schools in, you know, from the United States to Iraq, which uh, it, it's it's fascinating. Can you tell us a bit, you've told us a bit about, um, you know, different elements of the student experience, but what about the model? And by that, I mean, the curricular model is, is are there foundations that are then adapted in all different places? And I'm curious about that model. And I'm also curious about um, the places that have been most willing, whether they're countries or maybe in the United States states that have been most willing to um, to take what Sabas has to offer to to adhere to the model. Well, you know, usually uh, all all over the world, uh, uh, the, the the basic uh, curriculum is is uh, uh, the same. Uh, it it differs uh, uh, in uh, uh, very specific, uh, uh, you know, uh, art related or the history and the geography that that you need to uh, to teach. But we are preparing all our students all over the world uh, to take uh, similar external exam, uh, additional to uh, the, the local exam, like in, in Massachusetts, we prepare them for the MCAS, for, for example. Uh, in Michigan, it's, it's something else. And uh, uh, in Iraq, uh, we prepare them for the, the local uh, Ministry of Education uh, examination uh, as well. Now, <clears throat> we've we've seen, uh, uh, you know, in in different countries, uh, we've seen different uh, reforms uh, being, uh, you know, introduced. Education uh, reform. Uh, unfortunately, um, I. I can't say that I am. I have seen any encouraging signs of effective and sustainable education reforms uh, uh, around uh, the world. Uh, you know, where uh, countries that have been more receptive uh, to to the Sabis model 
uh, I would I would term it more not just the Sabis model, but the Sabis way of doing things are countries that have uh, accepted to judge us on on results that uh, that we are uh, uh, that we are delivering, rather than getting involved into the actual operation uh, of the model uh, uh, itself. Uh, and that we see to a varying degree, different uh, uh, authorizers try to impose on us uh, uh, either philosophies or, or certain uh, ways of, of doing things that uh, sometimes, you know, come stand in the way of us being able to perform uh, as well as we would like to uh, to perform. Mr. Bistani, it's uh, good to hear your voice. This is Gerard Robinson. Yes, hello, Gerard. You're a entrepreneur, uh, business leader, and I've had a chance to see in my roles at the state level in Florida and Virginia, but also working for D.C. public schools, that public institutions in the education sector make great use of the private sector companies like yours. You know, across the U.S. and the world, privately run companies provide a wide variety of public services at every level. And it's not only with books, but it's also school construction, computer technology, software, textbook, and food services. In your view, why, do, why are there so many sticking points uh, in states and localities about for-profit management companies like Sabas? And what can the private sector and free market teach the public sector about improving the delivery of K-12 education? Well, you know, this is a, an excellent uh, question. And, and before I, I start, it's important uh, for your listener uh, in full transparency to <clears throat> remind them that I'm uh, the president of a for-profit uh, uh, organization. Uh, and therefore, I have uh, uh, probably uh, vested interest in, in supporting that uh, vehemently. Uh, <clears throat> You know, this uh, uh, issue uh, or this question is better um, answered by state and local authorities, if, if you want their side of the story, why, why they feel that uh, uh, the for-profit uh, is not as welcomed on the table. However, having said that, I would say that, uh, from my perspective, uh, some of the sticking points, uh, and here I'm, I'm talking, I'm looking at it, the 30,000 uh, feet uh, view uh, uh, of it, is uh, number one is denial. You know, I, I feel denial is, is at the, the forefront or at the, the basis of, of it all. Because if you don't accept that there is a problem, you don't have, you don't feel that you have to find a solution. Uh, the fact is that public education is in such a dire state all over the world. Uh, uh, and the, the task at hand, and that being raising the nation's uh, public education standard, not just educating 
uh, one uh, set of uh, students in one specific public schools. But you're talking about raising the education standard of a whole nation so that the nation can become competitive, can produce scientists, can, uh, you know, can increase the number of researchers uh, that, uh, that, that uh, they're delivering. Uh, to the to the marketplace to strengthen that uh, that future uh, for the, the the next generations it this this whole process requires an all hands on deck approach so you know if there is a denial then uh, and and you're convinced that you're doing well then, then you know you have someone that comes in and says i have a solution Obviously, you're not uh, going to open the door for them. The second thing is, basically, instead of seeing the advantages of engaging the for-profit private sector in education, uh, unfortunately, state and local authorities get stuck on protecting the status quo, not because it's good for children, but because you know, they have a vested interest, whatever that that is. Here, obviously, I'm talking about unions, uh, lawmakers who benefit from union support, and public school district officials who feel, in most cases, threatened by potential competitors that do not have their hands as tight. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> finally, uh, if I may add, politics is always a sticking point. Uh, there are always controlling political interests uh, at play that, uh, you know, basically helps shut that door continuously uh, in front of the faces of uh, the for-profit private school operators, even though in many situations, they have proven themselves over and over again that they were able to contribute to the task at hand. Understandable. When you were speaking to Carl, you talked about the importance of assessments and regular, consistent and measurable testing of students is central to one of the central features at Sabas. Could you talk about the importance of student testing in helping bridge achievement gaps, as well as giving teachers, parents, and students uh, the data necessary to make uh, significant academic gains with their students? Yeah, you are right in, in what you said, that uh, frequent testing is central uh, uh, to, to the SABIS uh, system. Uh, and let me, let me explain why. Uh, our assessment serves a, a very, you know, specific purpose. Uh, um, we do assessment because, as I said earlier, we are academically non-selective. So we have uh, students coming to us uh, with all kinds of uh, academic uh, uh, knowledge base. And sometimes it is a, a full of uh, academic, uh, uh, you know, gaps. 
uh, and we have to reconstruct it. How do you reconstruct something if you don't know what you're dealing with and uh, uh, at all times? Uh, you know, there's one thing that people miss in, in uh, when they're looking at the education process. And I, I always try to remind people uh, about academic retention. You know, today, uh, everything that we learn is uh, uh, dependent on something that we've learned before. Well, you know, what if we've forgotten what we've learned before? How, how is the teacher going to impart that knowledge, not knowing that, you know, we don't have the necessary foundation to accept this new, new knowledge that's being imparted? So, so the, the teachers, unfortunately, and it is wrong to, to blame teachers, uh, teachers that are uh, working in public schools or, or private schools or charter schools when uh, they don't turn, uh, they don't produce results. Unfortunately, they're flying blind. They don't know what the student knows. Uh, they knew what that student knew a week ago or a month ago, but maybe that student forget what he is or she is supposed to know. So that the frequent testing makes sure that we all have regular reality checks and reality checks are important for SABIS, the SABIS administration, the students, the teachers, and the parents uh, at the same time. You know, often we have parents that bring their kids from other schools in the States, specifically from other charter schools. And, you know, after they sit the first few tests, uh, they get, you know, a, a grade that is much lower. So suppose they get a, a C. And so parents come to us and say, how come they got a C? You know, my, my kid was getting A's all the time in his or her previous school. So, you know, this, this is important. We need to provide parents with, with a real reality check so that they can work with uh, the school administration to ensure that the student is given the, the necessary help. You know, when, when we go to, to a doctor, the, the first thing that they do is, is check where you stand so that they know how they can help you. Uh, and I think this is the, the, the importance of, of testing. Uh, and and uh, what testing uh, really helps us achieve at the end of uh, at the end of the day, and and you know we keep doing this to help students fill the gaps in their knowledge base, and and give them guidance, give them feedback. So it is a, a an ongoing loop of feedback. Uh, you know you don't know this. You need to to concentrate on this so that you build up, it's, it's a building process. And, and the testing allows us to uh, uh, guide us and the student in what needs to be uh, uh, worked on and where the, the effort needs to be placed. And I'm so glad that you made a point that you accept 
all types of students, those who come in with very low literacy skills, all to those who come from homes where literacy is important. Because people, understandably so for some, will assume that because you have a for-profit company, you're cream skimming the best and brightest students. And you've identified not only is is that not the case, uh, but state data tell us that some of the students you're working with who are challenged academically seem to do well well under your system. So congratulations for that. Yes, thank you, Gerald. Uh, Mr. Bastani, I have one more question for you, if you're if you're willing to stay with us for another moment. And I, I feel like we'd be remiss not to ask about um, about the impact of this global pandemic on your students. And I'm curious, given that you you truly have a global view <laughs> of how you know <clears throat> different countries have reacted in terms of allowing children to be in school or shutting schools down. What have you seen with regard to the number of children that are actually experiencing face-to-face instruction in your system? And for those who are unable to experience face-to-face instruction, uh, what has the shift been like for Sabas? Uh, you know, as as you rightly said, uh, you know, we we see uh, uh, we. We have a view all over the world of what's happening uh, within our network. Uh, what I can tell you uh, is that uh, we have schools that have gone, uh, uh, you know, remote uh, all the time. Some schools are going, uh, working in a hybrid model. Some other schools are working uh, you know, one week at school and and the other week at home, and and they flip. Uh, the other half of the class is is uh, either following remotely or or in in school itself. So you know, there are different flavors, different combinations. As far as we're concerned, um, you know, if I can just summarize it in a, in a funny anecdote uh, uh, that is is a reality, really. Uh, one of our parents came to us and and said, it's as if you guys knew that the pandemic was coming. You were so so very ready for, for it. Oh, <laughs> you, you, you got going from the first day. And that, that is true. This is how I best summarize uh, that, you know. And again, I want to link that to the fact that we're a for-profit organization, and this is the benefit or the advantage of being for-profit, whereby we have uh, invested uh, very large amounts of money into research and development to digitize uh, our curriculum, to to work on pedagogical our pedagogical methodologies and and structure them. Uh, and, and build the necessary IT infrastructure, our ebook uh, series, uh, the, the whole uh, educational uh, uh, you know, material has been digitized. So when, when COVID hit uh, the world, all we had to do is basically keep the kids at home and uh, teachers uh, either from home or from their uh, classroom if they were able to come to school 
they were able to continue doing what they've been doing. You know, the, the only thing that changed is physically they were not seeing uh, the students, uh, uh, you know, in front of them, but but through a a, a screen. So so we were ready, and that is really a result of us wanting to be and to remain ahead of of competition. So those are the advantages of of involving the private a private enterprise in in an environment like this, where you have to keep innovating, you have to keep uh, uh, you know investing so that you make sure that you remain uh, uh, in in the game uh, and and uh, you don't fall behind your competitor and you have you're really adding real value to your uh, customers uh, now obviously this whole uh, pandemic and uh, the the working uh, from home environment has created challenges uh, other than the the delivery uh, from from operators uh, or from public schools uh, you know the challenges uh, came from the fact that it was difficult to control what students were doing in many situations they didn't have adults uh, 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 supervising uh, them at at home because the adults were 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 at work, uh, and uh, there were uh, social and emotional uh, issues uh, faced with with uh, students. Uh, but uh, all in all, <clears throat> you know, from our perspective, at least uh, uh, throughout uh, throughout the world. Uh, you know, this uh, has given us, uh, you know, a, a lot of encouragement because it has opened huge opportunities for us where, whereby we have uh, put to test, uh, you know, being able to, uh, to uh, impart knowledge uh, remotely. Uh, and while making sure that we have maintained the, the the discipline and the structure that that was needed, added to that, obviously our assessment methodologies and tools that were also uh, uh, you know implemented uh, helped us to ensure that you know irreparable gaps were not being formed. Uh, because of this transition that that took place, so uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, we were certainly ready for it, and uh, I feel, uh, <clears throat> you know, not that we're not looking forward for students to go back to to their classrooms, uh, especially the younger ones uh, that uh, need uh, the the social interaction that need. Uh, to be able to uh, spend their uh, extra energies uh, running around uh, meeting and, and uh, discussing things with friends and, and their teachers. But uh, certainly uh, this has not created uh, 
lost time. Uh, it was well, well utilized. And uh, uh, those that were ready uh, moved into it much faster. Those that, uh, you know, were not ready took some time trying to figure out what to do and, and uh, what not to do. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and you have some horror stories, I must say, uh, all over the world that, that we keep hearing, uh, you know, teachers that are basically not present or not knowing how to guide their, uh, their students. Uh, so, you know, the structure that we had in place certainly played a very important role in ensuring that uh, uh, learning never stops. Well, yeah, and I have to say, I, I asked that question because having um, having visited and researched some of your schools, I, I assumed that there might be a competitive edge, and we're very, very happy to hear that, um, despite despite the challenges that we're all facing. So, Carl Bastani, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for chatting with us here on The Learning Curve. I know our listeners are going to very much enjoy it. And stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, and you too. Bye-bye. So as you know, we are in the spirit of Thanksgiving, and there is a tweet uh, that came out from Plymouth 400 on November 21st, and it says, this year marks the 400th anniversary of the voyage of the Mayflower, the founding of the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, and the Pilgrims' first encounters with Native Americans. And in the link, you will find a story about what took place currently in Plymouth. And CBS News has a really good video where they have interviewed uh, someone from the Native American community whose roots go back 14,000 years as a community um, to talk about what the interaction meant to his people, also to a historian uh, to talk about the boat, uh, to talk about the people, uh, their time in Holland. This season, for a host of reasons, uh, some celebrate, some have turned their back on it uh, because of some of the atrocities that have happened to Native peoples, and understandably so, there are some people who are doing that. But this would be a really good um, tweet to not only read, but to take a look at the CBS News uh, video. I learned some things about uh, Plymouth I did not know, and uh, they're broadening the story. And one thing they're doing is, for the first time, they're actually including uh, the Native American tribe as part of the planning for the 400th uh, ceremony, and well, I should say the 400th celebration. And when uh, the newscaster asked the gentleman, you know, are you surprised this happened? He says, no, I'm glad this happened, but I can tell you what, 20 years ago, this would have been unthinkable. So yeah. something to celebrate today. Yeah, I mean, took a while, but <laughs> I, that's yeah, and it's um, it's I have to say, you know, being up here very close to Plymouth, it's uh, one of the sad things about this happening at this particular 
time is that um, there would would have been, I think, a, a pretty grand in-person celebration of this. If you really think 400 years, um, I would have loved to have taken my family, for example, but it's maybe maybe 401 years is, is something that we'll all be celebrating, but a very appropriate and, and good story for this time of year. I encourage everybody to check it out. And next week, Gerard, I feel like I have to study over the break to talk to our next guest. I feel like I have to go back to some of my old um, research and evaluation and statistics books from my doctoral program because we are going to be speaking with the Professor Carolyn Hoxby. She is the Scott and Danya Bomber Professor of Economics at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. And if you've ever studied anything about schools, you have read Caroline Hoxby. So I'm, yes. um, I'm, I get a, I got a little bit of a fangirl thing going on over here, but I'm pretty, um, pretty, pretty excited about this next guest. So Gerard, until then, I wish you and yours a safe, Happy, healthy Thanksgiving. And I will be, um, I would like you to text me the gumbo recipe, please. Okay. And let me, after, after you have ascertained that people were not sickened by it. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and if you have any good, like pumpkin old, you know, uh, Southern pie recipes, because that's not something um, I've ever been taught to do. Uh, I'll take those as well. Sounds good. All right. Take care. 